The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The star uh, investigation had commissioned a series of, of analyses from constitutional scholars, uh, most notably Ron Rotunda, concluding that a president, a sitting president, was not immune from indictment and could be indicted, and um, and that the OLC opinion to the contrary was wrong. Uh, that obviously was never tested, but I kind of start there because the uncertainty of that. Yeah, was always looming behind Ken Starr's uh, investigation of uh, Bill Clinton. I'm Quinta Jurassic, senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, September 16th, 2022. Ken Starr, the former federal judge and independent counsel who became famous for his investigation of President Bill Clinton, died this week on September 13th at age 76. Starr was a complex and controversial figure. After running the Whitewater and Lewinsky investigations, he went on to serve as president of Baylor University, only to resign over the mishandling of a sex abuse scandal involving the university's football team. He'd later go on to defend President Trump in Trump's first impeachment. To think through Starr's legacy, I spoke with Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes, who published a book on Starr, and Lawfare contributing editor Paul Rosenzweig, who worked with Starr on the Clinton investigation. We took a look back at Starr's probe of Clinton and how the investigation shaped the culture and practice of investigations of the president in ways that are more relevant than ever in the Trump era. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 16th. The Legal Legacy of Ken Starr. To start with, I thought we might just uh, spell out both of your backgrounds and how you knew Ken Starr and why I'm talking to you. I I believe this is uh, how you two met, in fact. Ben, let me start with you. So I was a reporter at Legal Times for part of the Starr investigation, and I did a limited amount of coverage of it for that. And then when I moved over to the Washington Post editorial page, that happened about a month before the Lewinsky scandal broke, uh, maybe two months. And so I spent the first couple years at the Washington Post covering the Lewinsky investigation for the editorial page and then the impeachment uh, and the wind down of the Starr investigation. And so I, I dealt with the investigation quite a lot. And I ended up uh, writing a book about uh, Ken Starr that he 
cooperated with extensively. It was based on a series of interviews, uh, and that was published, I believe, in 2002 uh, called Star Reassessment. So I, I actually spent a lot of my early career kind of enmeshed in, in this investigation, and that's how it sort of how I got interested in the subject of presidential investigation and scandal and as an, you know, which all kind of came back to life in the Trump era. But for me, it really had its genesis in the star investigation. And Paul, how about you? So I, I joined Ken Starr's investigation in November of 1997, which is just so I share with Ben the we we started new jobs just before the Lewinsky scandal. Um, I had signed on to help Judge Starr write his final report to pull together what had then been four years of investigation into Whitewater that had been quite you know extensive and very floppy and went in many directions and was going to need to be boiled down to something relatable that people would read and history would appreciate. And that, of course, was literally two months before uh, Monica Lewinsky kind of came into the world's, or, or pro- probably more accurately, Linda Tripp came into the world's attention. And then I spent the next two years of my life uh, on the other side of that, not uh, working on the legal issues for Judge Starr, uh, relating to everything from ethics complaints against him to uh, executive privilege claims raised by President Clinton. Uh, and I stayed with the stayed with him full time until 2000. Well, he left shortly after the impeachment and I stayed on uh, with Bob Ray, who is successor for a bit. And then I went into private practice where my first set of clients was was the independent counsel. And I went back to helping him write his final report. So if you go and read the four volume Whitewater final report, the first volume, which is the executive summary, is is something that I had a, a significant hand in writing. So Ben, the title of your book, which we've mentioned, is called Star A Reassessment. And over the last few years, I've joked with you pretty incessantly that you should maybe write a follow-up titled Star A Reassessment, A Reassessment. And I think what, what that joke gets to is that the events of the last few years, including a special counsel investigation of a president and not one but two impeachments, have really provided uh, opportunity to reconsider the star investigation in light of recent happenings. So before we dive in more deeply, I do think that it might be helpful to give a super high-level overview of what it was that Starr was originally appointed to investigate and what he ended up investigating that eventually turned into the impeachment, just because, as Paul says, it is a, a pretty tangled story. Ben, would you be able to take a crack at that? Yeah, so I can give a very high-level overview of that. Starr was originally appointed, and appointments at that time were made by a three-judge panel under the independent counsel law, and he was appointed to take over the investigation that a different special prosecutor named Robert Fisk had begun of the Whitewater matter, which was a uh, matter involving a land deal and a savings and loan in Arkansas that had done business with the Clintons. Um, and to that investigation, uh, which produced a number of, of indictments, um, uh, including the sitting governor of the state at the time, Jim Guy Tucker, 
as well as Jim and Susan McDougall, the proprietors of the bank, uh, and Webb Hubble, the associate attorney general at the time. So it was a rather productive investigation, actually. The special counsel law, uh, the independent counsel law, the attorney general kept referring the investigations new things. And so it was referred also the to investigate the Vince Foster suicide, which was never actually worth investigating at all, um, as well as a now long forgotten scandal involving the White House Travel Office, another scandal which was actually an almost total fake involving uh, the Clinton White House's collection of certain FBI files, and then finally the Monica Lewinsky matter, which erupted in the beginning of, of uh, 1998, uh, which of course involved uh, Bill Clinton's lying under oath in the Paula Jones case about having had an affair with an intern. Uh, and so there was a migration of, of the star investigation, both because uh, the investigators were interested in taking on new things uh, for one reason or another, and because and a lot of Clinton's defenders conveniently forget this in retrospect, and because Clinton's attorney general at the time, Janet Reno, found the Starr investigation a very easy way to get rid of scandals was you just kind of sent them to, to Ken Starr. And so you ended up with, I think, the most dramatic mission creep in the history of special counsel investigations from the Whitewater land deal to, pardon me, blowjobs in the Oval Office. Paul, anything you want to add to that? I think that that's an accurate summary of of the migration. Part of it, I think, is explained simply because um, there is a huge institutional cost to creating new independent councils. They, they, I mean, they have offices, they have staffs. And so it became in the Clinton era kind of the path of least resistance for the AG to refer them. Uh, it also became the path of least political resistance, which is, you know, at least for some of those, as Ben noted, the FBI files one and probably the Travelgate one as well, could quite properly have been determined not to be worthy of an independent counsel. And to some degree, Attorney General Reno, either you can say either she was exercising, you know, the greatest degree of restraint and, and probity in refusing to be the one to do so, or you can say that she was politically weak in being unwilling to take the heat for doing so. She always obviously spoke in later years of, of the the first of those is as her motivation. But the foster suicide is kind of a perfect example of, of what a, actually a, an independent counsel might be good at, because the suicide of, of one of the president's closest friends is probably not something he should investigate. But, you know, for some of the others, it, Attorney General Reno did no favors by offering it, and, and Judge Starr did no favors by saying yes to some of them. So Ben, what was your initial titular reassessment and how is it sort of in conversation with the general understanding of Star at the time that you were writing and publishing the book? Yeah, so one of the fascinating things about the Star investigation was how much 
the White House's response to it in small ways, but important ways, kind of presaged the Trumpian response to Bob Mueller. And I was offended by that at the time in some small percentage of the degree to which I was later (laughs) offended by, um, I mean, Trump blew it from you know, one to a hundred. And my response was blue from about one to a hundred as well. But, you know, the Clinton White House treated the Starr investigation as a witch hunt, as a, you know, a partisan effort to uh, delegitimize and injure the presidency. Um, Oh, and also as deeply ethically compromised and uh, frankly made up a whole bunch of garbage about ethics issues involving Ken Starr, that all of which had to be defended by one Paul Rosenzweig. Uh, and at the end of this investigation, I was confused, frankly, because I was having trouble disentangling in my mind, uh, all right, what are legitimate criticisms here? Starr obviously did not do a perfect job. What was the part of this that I actually thought criticism was merited? What are the parts that I thought were really unfair? And so I asked Ken to sit down with me and just let me interrogate him about all of the decisions that they had made uh, on the record. There, um, and he did. Um, and so I have, I don't know, 10 or 12 hours of taped interviews with Ken Starr, where I kind of tried to unpack what was what were the key decisions that the investigation made and which of them I agreed with and disagreed with. And I ended up coming to an understanding of the investigation that is essentially a critique, but it's not an ethical critique and it's not a partisan critique. The critique was that Ken Starr uh, fundamentally misunderstood his role and that the role of the independent counsel should be that of a prosecutor and that a a federal prosecutor is not a storyteller and not a, uh, a report writer and not a, uh, a journalist, but is a person who makes hard-headed decisions about whether to bring cases or not. And that Ken had kind of elevated the report writing function of the special counsel of the independent counsel into what I called the truth commission vision of the statute that was really he was going to tell the story and that this was a fundamental mistake. And so the reassessment was, hey, stop talking about this as a partisan witch hunt. Stop talking about this as a series of ethics failures. All the bar complaints all went nowhere, by the way. Stop talking about it as, you know, as a uh, a witch hunt and focus on where this investigation departs from the norms of federal prosecutions. And that was the, the basic critique. And uh, Ken, to my, uh, he thought the, the book was uh, entirely wrong, but called it the most, the only fair critique of him that he had read. Um, and so I, I think the, the interesting thing about it in retrospect is that at the time, a huge number of people agreed with me about, wow, he really got this vision of the role wrong. And then when Bob Mueller came around, 
Uh, everybody criticized Bob Mueller for not having a truth commission vision of the statute. Bob Mueller did exactly what I said, criticized Ken Starr for not doing, and he got criticized for that. And so I thought that was one of the great ironies of the uh, of the history of presidential investigations. And to, to clarify, you're, when you say that Starr was treating it like a truth commission, part of what you're referring to is particularly aggressive investigative and prosecutorial tactics, but you're also talking about the the manner in which the final report um, about Lewinsky was written and comparing that to the Mueller report, which is, I think it's fair to say, substantially more terse. So there's a terseness issue, and there's, but there's also the question of whether you are conducting the investigation for purposes of writing the report at all. And I think the, as a general matter, a prosecutor should not be right, running an investigation for report writing purposes. Uh, it should be trying to make a decision about whether to prosecute a case. And I think Ken really felt that the job of the independent counsel was to, as he put it to me, hundreds of times to get and report the truth. And, you know, later Sue Schmidt, the the Washington Post reporter who covered the Starr investigation most closely, her biography of that period of Starr's life was, was entitled Truth at Any Cost. And so I think, you know, he really did have this sort of fervent vision that their job was to be the kind of Archbishop Desmond Tutu of the late Clinton era. And, you know, I, I, I do think that was a mistake. That was the reassessment. But the reassessment of the reassessment of the modern times is that we actually kind of want that, you know, and, and if Bob Mueller doesn't deliver that, we will, like, we will run hundreds of earnest articles about all the questions he left unanswered. And so I think we have a very ambiguous and ambivalent relationship with Starr's Truth Commission vision of the statute. You know, I think one of the seminal things that that kind of drove Ken's vision of this was, uh, we've already alluded to it, the, the Foster suicide investigation. It was undertaken in part not to determine who to prosecute because it was pretty evidently a suicide, you know, from, you know, the third day of the, of the investigation. It was, you know, but uh, to put to rest the, the kind of er conspiracy theories that are now, you know, the fervid imagination of the QAnonists of the world. And Bob Fisk did a, a prosecutor's job with that. Uh, and, you know, concluded in a in a relatively brief 30 page report, you know, after three months that there was no there there and he would not prosecute it. And I think for political reasons that were that were genuinely external to to Ken's and, you know, uh, anticipated type of activity, he felt compelled by the the continuation of conspiracy theories to reopen the Foster suicide investigation and spend another year and a, and a half, you know, hammering every lead to and including a loss in the Supreme Court on an attorney-client privilege issue uh, that, you know, extended the investigation for a good year just by itself so that in the end he could write, or in truth, he could ask Brett Kavanaugh to write a 
I, I forget exactly, but something like a 150 page exhaustive report that included, you know, to to put the positive spin on the truth seeking function. I recall that they literally had 10 uh, investigators, FBI agents and retired FBI agents spend weeks combing Marcy Park where 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 Foster's body was found for the bullet. I mean, nobody ever found the bullet that killed him. It, it There was an entry wound and an exit wound. So they knew it was in the park somewhere or it should be in the park, but it was never found. And, you know, that was a conspiracy. So they spent, I don't know, two man years looking for the bullet. And, and I think that to some degree, Ken's vision of the independent counsel as a truth-seeking thing was seen through the very earliest prism of, of that particular part of the investigation. And then it got magnified, of course, by subsequent events. And, and as Ben says, you know, the, the irony or the strangeness of it, of course, is that when Mueller didn't do that, didn't tell us what he really, everything he found, yeah, we're all like, well, all that, you're not writing your report? Yeah, and Andrew Weissman has to go and write a book about it. It, it is easy to say that Ken was wrong. It is harder to say that he was ineluctably wrong. <laughs> and I don't think you did, Ben. I don't think No, and I, I actually completely agree with you. And I think there's a, it never names itself as such, but there's a pro-Ken star backlash going on that doesn't acknowledge what it is. It's a pro-truth commission backlash. So, you know, when uh, our colleagues, Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith wrote their post-Trump reform book, they argued that the report of the special counsel in the reformed special counsel rules that they were applying should always become public. That is a nudge back toward the truth commission. And they actually defend the storytelling vision of the law and or, or of the regime and defend that it need, really needs one, that it's not a pure prosecutorial function. And so I think Ken represents a poll in a debate that, you know, a lot of people are keen to be inconsistent in and they, they want a fulsome report of against presidents they don't like. They embrace a truth commission in certain circumstances, but they don't really want the presidents they like subject to a truth commission vision. And I think, you know, to his credit, Ken articulated and defended a vision of the statute and lived by it. And I think it's a legitimate position. It's one I disagree with. You know, I, for whatever it's worth, I will generalize this, and perhaps this is a, a way to pivot. And I would say that the the Trump-Clinton uh, dichotomy has exemplified retrenching on almost every axis of legal analysis that one can imagine, uh, from yeah, the independence of Mueller, which was uh, condemned as he was too too subservient to DOJ. But yeah, you know, we had the independent counsel experience, and we hated to conceptions of executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, uh, you name it. The valences have completely switched uh, in many instances, and and I, I think I'm proud to say I at least am maintaining my consistency. I hope. Yeah. 
Consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, Paul. Thank you, Emerson. <laughs> Um, so, so I do think that sort of underpinning a lot of the back and forth that you both just had is the movement from the independent council statue under which Starr was operating and of which he had this uh, sort of very particular reading that Ben has described to the special counsel regulations within the Justice Department that Mueller was operating under and that the movement from the statute, which was allowed to lapse to those regulations, is very much a reaction to Starr. Um, and I think that reaction creates a lot of the constraints that Mueller was operating under. Would one of you be able to give me just kind of a, a brief overview of that for listeners who maybe aren't so familiar and how it is that, you know, we're, we're now coming to rethink whether the regs themselves should be changed? Well, I'll, I'll start and then Ben can jump in and I'll even plug it. For those of you who want 30 minutes on this, I did an entire lecture in it on, in the Teaching Companies Investigating American Presidents series. Uh, I get 12 cents if you buy the lecture. Uh, and download it. But I, the, the short answer is this. You know, the independent counsel law was itself a reaction to the existing special counsel rules uh, undergirded the Watergate investigations of Richard Nixon, which most famously at one point in time resulted in the firing of the independent counsel or the, the special counsel, the Whitewater special prosecutor, uh, by Richard Nixon, the resignation of an attorney general and a deputy attorney general who would do it. And, uh, and then uh, the de facto independence of his successor because of the political costs of firing the second uh, Whitewater special prosecutor. But Congress, in its wisdom, found itself uh, dissatisfied with the idea that a president could willy-nilly uh, discharge somebody charged with the, his own investigation. And so they created the independent counsel law. Mo many people, including me, thought it was unconstitutional to create this, this independent authority officially housed in the judicial branch. But they lost that argument in the Supreme Court uh, with only one dissenter, Antonin Scalia, who said, you know, uh, famously, sometimes a wolf comes in a sheep's clothing, but this wolf of the law comes as a wolf and we will grow to rue the day. And we did. You attributed the lapse to uh, a reaction to Starr, but I would say it was a bipartisan reaction. The Republicans were equally dismayed with uh, how uh, Lawrence Walsh had chased after the Iran-Contra cases seemingly endlessly to and including you know, potential indictments against Casper Weinberger in the immediate uh, run-up to the election, uh, the 92 elections, right? Uh, and then, and then you know, in the Clinton area, it wasn't just Starr, but it was growth like Topsy. Attorney General Reno, for whatever reason, wound up, you know, there was a Cisneros attorney uh, independent counsel. There was a Mike Espy independent counsel. There was the Bill Clinton. They, it it grew quite crazy. And so Congress, the, the, the decision to let the law lapse was nearly unanimous in its bipartisan agreement. There were, there were no, nobody played a requiem for the law, but uh, the government did recognize, the Department of Justice did recognize that they needed to make some provision in case the circumstances arose again. Hence, the special counsel regulations 
under which Robert Mueller was appointed, which tried to kind of navigate between Scylla and Charybdis, tried to uh, maintain the patina of DOJ control, including reporting requirements and such, while seeming to give, try and give the special counsel uh, independence. You'll recall that, I mean, one of the most controversial aspects of Mueller's tenure was the fact that his report, before it became public, had to go through Attorney General Barr, who quite famously you know, mischaracterized it and slow walked a lot of the release. And they, they are still fighting over some of it. Uh, I think they just decided to release some recently, right? There was a decision on that. So, so here we are two and a half years later, and we still haven't seen the whole report. Contrast that with Ken Starr's report to Congress that was uh, sent in and was released three days later in its entirety on the Lewinsky matter. So we've been having this pendulum from inside the Department of Justice to independence to inside the Department of Justice. And now, as you said, Jack Goldsmith, Bob Bauer want to kind of move back a little bit away from out from under the Department of Justice. I, I think, candidly, it's an unsquarable circle. And, you know, you can you can only make so many compromises. Yeah. So I will just highlight a, a couple of elements of the substantive difference between the statutory regime and the regulatory regime that followed it. So under the statutory regime, the statute was invoked by the attorney general. But once the attorney general pulls the trigger, uh, a three-judge panel names the special counsel whom the attorney general cannot fire or direct. In fact, the statute held that the special, the independent counsel was the attorney general for purposes of the matter within his jurisdiction. So it really, it, it really takes the attorney general out of the picture. Moreover, it requires a public report that could be quite exhaustive um, and did not direct the attorney, the special counsel as to how the report was to be written or what, what it was to include. So it could be really, really detailed or not, just depending on the whim of the, uh, of the independent counsel. And then the other element was that the uh, statute gave the independent counsel, it didn't just take away the attorney general's ability to supervise. The, it, it actually gave the attorney general, I think the language was, if I'm remembering from 20 years ago, full power and independent authority to act as the attorney general. So it actually gave the attorney general's power to the independent counsel. Oh, and then one other element, the attorney general could not change the system because the system was written into statute. Now, under the special counsel regime that replaced it, number one, the attorney general appoints and can remove the special counsel. So can only remove him for cause, but is the person who can remove him and, by the way, can change the rules because he can, he can redo the regs if he wants, right? The regs are not written into statute, uh, so they are changeable. And then finally... Uh, the special counsel's report is supposed to be a report only on decisions to prosecute or not prosecute and is made privately to the attorney general 
the attorney general then has the option of releasing it. So it has, there are major, major differences. And I, while I agree with Paul that this was also a response to Lawrence Walsh, in a functional sense, it was a response to Ken Starr because Republicans always opposed the independent counsel provisions. In 1992, when Congress reauthorized it, it had lapsed because of Republican opposition. What had changed in the intervening five or six years was that Democrats had come to see that Scalia was right and had joined the opposition, thereby depriving the regime of any support. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So beyond the sort of the larger legal structure under which the STAR investigation was operating, there are also a lot of specific legal questions on which the STAR investigation very much still echoes today. And certainly, I think it's fair to say, is shaping the January 6th investigation, shaped uh, other investigations of the president, including the Mueller investigation that goes from executive privilege to the question of whether government attorneys can invoke attorney-client privilege to avoid testifying before a grand jury to the question of whether the Secret Service has to testify uh, before the grand jury. So there, and that's, that is not an exhaustive list. So Paul, let me turn to you first, if there are particular uh, sort of corners of the law that jump out to you as being major legacies of the Star investigation. Oh, so many. Yeah. I, in truth, immediately after this, I proposed to the law school where I teach to do a course, the law of the Clinton impeachment. Uh, we could have done a 13-week class and done one new issue each week. They rejected it on the grounds that it might be too controversial. I thought that was unwise of them. And now now it's not. Um, I, I might propose it again as the law of the Clinton and Trump eras. Uh, so, so here are a few of the legal issues that I think were, were highly salient. Uh, the first and, and most obvious that you didn't mention is the indictability of sitting presidents, which was ultimately determinative in the Mueller investigation. The Starr uh, investigation had commissioned a series of, of analyses from constitutional scholars, uh, most notably Ron Rotunda, who's since passed away, concluding that a president, a sitting president, was not immune from indictment and could be indicted, and um, and that the OLC opinion to the contrary was wrong. Uh, that obviously was never tested, but I kind of start there because the uncertainty of that you know, was always looming behind Ken Starr's uh, investigation of uh, Bill Clinton, at least. You know, Hillary was obviously not immune as the first lady, 
But, you know, one of the other sort of factors that might have played in Ken's Truth, Truth Commission vision was the fact that he was not really likely to be able to make a, a legitimate prosecutorial decision. Or, or to put it another way, like many, I found Bob Mueller's failure to opine on the ultimate legal question of potential culpability disappointing and difficult to square with his collection of evidence. Uh, so, so that one resonated quite a bit. The, the other pieces of it uh, that clearly continue to resonate today are things like executive privilege and the attorney-client privilege with respect to governmental attorneys. Bill Clinton uh, systematically lost all of those. Uh, Bruce Lindsay, his lawyer, uh, his White House deputy White House counsel, tried to argue that his conversations with the president were cloaked both in executive privilege and by attorney-client privilege. As to executive privilege, the courts held that executive privilege had to yield in the face of a specific need for for testimony in a criminal investigation, thus echoing in the grand jury context, testimonial context, the same resolution that the Supreme Court had said in U.S. versus Nixon, uh, it, which was a records case, uh, the famous White House tapes. As to uh, Lindsay's claim of attorney-client privilege, the, the D.C. Circuit essentially shot that down completely and, and said what I take to be canonically correct, that governmental lawyers... Uh, don't work for the president, they work for the United States. Uh, and thus, uh, there is no governmental attorney-client privilege that is any different than the executive privilege. They, I mean, they get the same sort of executive privilege for their advice to the extent that it might be protected, but there's no governmental attorney-client privilege, at least not as against another part of the government. Uh, they they reserved and there's still to be answered whether, you know, Don McGahn could be forced to testify in a civil suit uh, by people injured in the January 6th events about his or not Don, Don McGahn, Pat Cip, uh, Cipollini, McGahn, had left, whether Cipollini would be, could be forced to testify about the advice he, he gave to the president on January 6th as against, you know, by... Uh, you know, the plaintiff's lawyer for an injured party in January 6th. But as to the, at, at least internal to the government, which by itself is also maybe different from Congress and the January 6th committee, it was clear there was no uh, attorney-client privilege. I mean, those are kind of my three highlights. We could we could go on for forever about the Secret Service privilege and stuff like that. But yeah, I just want to add to this that I, I so this is an area where I think a lot of Ken Starr hating liberals uh, actually need to uh, think about this a little bit about the legacy that there's that in retrospect, having gone through the Trump era, I don't feel any anxiety at all about any of the erosions of executive privilege affected by the Starr investigation. In fact, I think they're all wonderful. I like it that Pat Cipollone has no attorney-client privilege to claim when Wyndham wants to put him in front of a grand jury. And to clarify, that's that's Thomas Wyndham, who is uh, leading the Justice Department investigation into January 6th. Right. And that the attorney-client privilege for a government lawyer is weak enough though it's, there's still an open question whether it's assertable, it's weak enough that he didn't even litigate it. He just 
he ultimately reaches a deal with the January 6th committee. I think that's great. And by the way, people like me were quite anxious about this at the, like thought it was a great civil liberties erosion that Ken Starr was effectuating in in the Bruce Lindsay case and uh, the later DC circuit case. I also, honestly, I want to focus a little bit on the secret service privilege. There has been a lot of rumor that some of the information about the Mar-a-Lago documents has come from secret service officers that would have been contested before the Ken Starr investigation, whether whether that there was some privilege that protected them against uh, as law enforcement officers. This was Clinton's claim that a law enforcement officer had a privilege against disclosing evidence to a grand jury. What an outrageous claim if he was engaged in his protective function. And I frankly think it is great that Secret Service officers, if they are, are dishing to the FBI about the president, former president, having stolen highly classified information, that if they feel like it's their obligation as law enforcement officers to give evidence, God forbid, law enforcement officers should give evidence. I actually think we should thank the Star Investigation for that. They were under enormous pressure not to litigate that point. Uh, They were called all kinds of terrible things and they were right. And we see the benefits of it now. And we have not seen in the 20 years following the Starr investigation, an incident in which a president could not trust his secret service detail and was therefore in danger because of the so-called breach of the the secret service protective function privilege. I want to also mention one other thing that was not established by the Starr investigation, but was I think in the back of a lot of people's minds uh, as a result of the prosecution for criminal contempt of Susan McDougall, this was not for failure to testify before Congress. It was actually for failure to refusal to show up or, or speak to a grand jury. But I am sure that at least one person, I don't know who, remembered that case when they got their subpoena from the January 6th committee. And I happen to think the prosecution of Susan McDougall after already locking her up for civil contempt was probably excessive, but everybody who was politically aware at the time remembered that. And some of those people got subpoenas from the January 6th committee. I don't know what percentage of those people would have testified anyway, but they got a thousand interviews. And I think the atmosphere that, you know, if you really stiff a subpoena, we will lock you up actually was valuable. So I think, you know, a lot of the specific things that that investigation established, all of which were litigated very aggressively by the Clinton family and White House, and all of which all liberal opinion regarded as part of a witch hunt, I stand by it. I think it was the right thing to do in a lot of those cases and that the principles that emerge from it have been very salutary, uh, both for the Mueller investigation, where Don McGahn, the sitting White House counsel, spent 30 hours with them without an assertion of privilege. Unthinkable before the Starr investigation and the Lindsay case. Before the January 6th investigation, 
And with the Mar-a-Lago investigation, I think it is hard to imagine these investigations proceeding as they have without the precedents that the Starr investigation established. So speaking of things that uh, Ken Starr might have gotten right, I think we should also fast forward to closer to the present day and discuss something that I think it's fair to say we all agree he got extremely wrong, uh, which has to do with defending Donald Trump uh, in his first impeachment. So this is not just, you know, on, on television defending him, but he actually joined Trump's defense team and and argued in the Senate um, saying that the impeachment had had not been merited and that Trump ha- should should not be convicted. That's a pretty striking about face from somebody who submitted an impeachment referral to the House of Representatives over Clinton's obstruction of justice. So, Ben, I'm, I'm curious what you uh, make of that 180 degree turn. I want to say this in a way that's respectful because he died and had a, has a family and he was somebody that I had a real relationship with. And, and uh, I was appalled by it and I was very saddened by it. I thought it gave credence to a lot of things that people had always believed that he was a, you know, a partisan warrior that, uh, and that it, it put those of us inclined to take the, investigation more seriously, the the investigation that he conducted in a very difficult position. I thought it was, I don't know if Paul will say this, uh, so I'm going to say it myself. I thought it was very unfair to a lot of the people who worked for him, who did not see themselves as partisan warriors. And I also thought it was just deeply, deeply wrong on the merits. The investigation of Bill Clinton led to, uh, I would say, an impeachment that was justifiable but marginal. I think it was perfectly lawful for the House to impeach Bill Clinton over it, but it wasn't required. And Ken defended Donald Trump on an impeachment that was mandated by democratic necessity. There was There is no way a, a Congress consistent with its oath could have not impeached Donald Trump. And I thought that Ken got this spectacularly wrong and did it with a, a a very blithe disregard for the way it would cause his past work to be remembered and the degree to which he would reinforce prejudices that people had against that work product. And so I think to the extent that, you know, people don't associate the positive things that I just recounted about the, you know, the fact that the Mueller investigation was able to spend quality time with Don McGahn. The, the part of the reason people don't think about that in the context of the Star investigation is that Star seems to have objected to the use of of his precedents for such purposes, though to me they are obviously more compelling than they were in the context of his own investigation. So I find the whole thing deeply disheartening, and I very much wish this uh, last act of his legal career had been different. I agree with the sentiments that Ben has offered. It is hard to square Ken's defense of Mr. Trump, President Trump, with his 
investigation of Bill Clinton. I can't psychoanalyze the whys and wherefores of it, but what I, I can say, I think with some high degree of confidence for myself, is that it is not easy, indeed, I would say almost impossible, to explain the inconsistency between the two positions, which is to say that if you think of the obstruction of justice case against President Clinton, which I thought was legitimate, the obstruction of justice cases against President Trump were much stronger. If you think uh, the president's dereliction of duty in uh, having an affair with uh, an intern was, you know, a uh, an offense against his oath, and that his perjury was a an offense against his oath. You, you, it seems to me you have to think the same and more so about Donald Trump. And the only thing that I wish Judge Starr had done would have been to explain more why he changed his mind or what changed his mind. Perhaps he, he, he had come to regret the Clinton impeachment and saw it as such a bad stain that he, he wished to disavow. But I don't think that's the case. I, 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 in fact, I'm quite certain that's not the case because he wrote a whole book uh, about it called Contempt. So I, as one who's known him for many years, I am simply left puzzled. So I wanted to end on a, a note sort of zooming out a little bit and looking at a star investigation as a kind of crucible for a number of figures in the contemporary conservative legal movement and, and where those figures ended up under Trump. I think there, there's a broad range. So obviously, Paul, I think it's fair to say you've been an outspoken never-Trumper from the beginning. There are, of course, figures who are well-known uh, who are affiliated with Trump in some ways. So, of course, Justice Kavanaugh was appointed to the Supreme Court. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who sort of helped engineer Comey's firing and then appointed uh, Bob Mueller, uh, was also on the star team. There are many others. And so I think there, there's a real divergence among those figures in terms of how, you know, these are conservatives who think of themselves or who thought of themselves as committed to the rule of law, how how that team sort of takes different approaches to what I would certainly argue is the threat to the rule of law posed by Donald Trump. So Ben, I, I want to go to you first, and, and then I'm curious for Paul's thoughts, what you make of that kind of splintering in the different directions that people went. Yeah. So I, first of all, I would say the star investigation was around long enough that there were several different staffs and it's, there were relatively few people who were there from the beginning to the end. And of course, one of them, one of them was not Ken Starr who stepped down right after the impeachment and was replaced by Bob Ray. And so, you know, the staff went through a number of different iterations. It was not uniformly conservative. Uh, and there are some uh, fairly prominent uh, alums of the investigation, like Steve Bates, who uh, has done a lot of, uh, helped write the Star Report, was probably its principal author, and um, but was, I don't, I've never thought of Steve as a particular conservative. He's a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas now, and He's done a lot of work with lawfare. That said, there is no doubt that the Star investigation was a kind of incubator and launch pad for 
a certain generation of conservative lawyers, Brett Kavanaugh being one, but also John Bates, the very distinguished uh, district judge on the district court here in Washington, Steve Colleton on the Eighth Circuit, uh, and a number of others. In addition, there are people like you know former cabinet secretary uh, Alex Azar was a member of the staff for a while. So there's, you know, and like the conservative legal world in general, there has been a certain fracture of, you know, people like Trump split that world. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that that uh, office produces its Paul Rosenzweig's uh, and Steve Bates's, but also produces uh, people who are go on to great things in Trump world, like Brett Kavanaugh and, um, and who have, you know, have their peace they have to make with uh, Donald Trump in order to do that. Um, so I, I think it was clearly an incubator at the time, but I also, and part of that was that Starr's offices were always incubators. He was a solicitor general and, you know, in that role produced uh, great understudies like the current chief justice, but he, you know, he was a, a real talent spotter. And so it doesn't surprise me that the office, that the talent spotted in that office uh, went on to great prominence in a lot of areas. And it also doesn't surprise me that it splintered along the same rule of law issues that splintered the rest of the conservative movement. I do find it very ironic in an upsetting way every time I see somebody who worked in that office making one set of arguments about the relationship between presidential conduct and things like honor and decency and legality, uh, making the opposite set of arguments in the current uh, environment. And there are a few names that if I weren't in a more uh, respectful mood than I am now, I would name in that regard. But, you know, it is a reflection of the general state of the conservative movement, legal movement, that there are uh, fewer Paul Rosenzweigs uh, than there are some of those folk. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, that's a pretty fair summary. Uh, it, it, it happens that just yesterday, I went to the White House. Uh, uh, President Biden had a ceremony celebrating the signing of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is an act most of which I don't think terribly much of as a matter of policy. But I imagine I got invited because I, I had spoken in favor of the rule of law and against President Trump for quite some time and quite some length. And I posted some photos of it on, on social media and I got a... a, a comment from one of my former star colleagues. Yeah. So you're an honored guest of the Democrats now. And, and I think that does reflect uh, accurately what Ben says, which is to say that there's nothing different about the star, star cadre from anybody else in, you know, the conservative legal movement that I inhabited, have inhabited for 40 years. The Trumpian experience has fractured it uh, substantially. And um, obviously, I've I've made a choice. I've taken a side, as have many others. And you know, you pays your money, you takes your choices, and you're going to have to you're going to have to live with that going down. I think 
the, the thing that I would say that is that is a reality is something that Ben noted that I find remarkable, which is that Ken did attract, you know, a hugely talented group of people. You know, you mentioned cabinet secretaries and judges, but there are people in the law schools around around America today in significant positions. Uh, and partially, and I, I want to end on a really positive note, it's because he was a good boss. He really was a pleasure to work for. He, for, he, he encouraged brainstorming and creativity. He would say, you know, I don't care if, uh, if 80% of your ideas are bad ones, so long as 20% work out. And, and that's the kind of empowering leadership that lets you think creatively and outside the box. And, and when you get a, you know, two dozen really smart people in the same room, you get really interesting and fun uh, engagement on critical legal issues. I, 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 it was some of the most exciting and engaging work I ever did. It was also exhausting. And, and so to his credit, Ken was not only a good talent spotter, but a good talent enabler and himself a very talented man that his cadre of, of people have kind of been split by, by the break, fractures of the Trump movement is really no surprise because all of them were going to be people prominent enough to have opinions that mattered, you know, that, that their split mattered to America. And so that's the last thing I would say about Ken is, is I think he would be pleased to have remembered, be remembered as having had an impact. And it was not just in his own personal capacity, but in the people around him. He would be saddened that he's viewed with disdain or derogation by some, but uh, he would be heartened that he's he's had an impact on the world. So I, I, I just want to close with the observation that in many ways, the Bob Mullers and Ken Stars of the world and Bob Fisks and Lawrence Walsh's get too much of the scrutiny and attention. And that, you know, it is possible to have a presidency without scandal. And, you know, Joe Biden is doing it. There's no whiff of scandal in the Biden presidency. There was actually a uh, very little whiff of scandal in the Bush presidency, with the exception of the uh, disclosure of Valerie Plame's identity, which nobody believed Bush had personally had anything to do with. You know, whatever you think of the policies of the Bush administration, his personal conduct was unblemished. Ditto Barack Obama. And, you know, we, we, we put a lot on the way scandals are investigated and we often don't focus enough on how unnecessary they are um, and how if you look back at the great scandals of the last 30 years, they are all entirely avoidable. And uh, once you have uh, presidential conduct that's you know bad enough to warrant this kind of investigation and and I'm thinking here principally of, of, of Donald Trump, but, you know, Clinton also did a lot of things that, you know, actually did require investigation. 
you've already cast the die and the personality of the investigator and the behavior of the investigator tends to get a lot of attention, but that die has already been cast. And so I think, I actually think the larger message of the star Mueller story is a, is a message about presidential conduct, not about investigative conduct. And that, you know, as president or as somebody close to the president, you have the option of not embroiling the country in this. And actually that is an option that Bob Mueller or Ken Starr did not have. By the time they're appointed, by the time they're involved, there's already a shit show. And the person who gets to avoid the shit show in the first place is the president. And relatively few of these situations are situations where uh, the president got dragged into something Generally speaking, the president waltzes into these things. And I, I, I do think it's important not to let presidents shift blame to special prosecutors, whether it's there are rare instances in which it's justified. But largely speaking, these are situations where presidents have done bad things and the special prosecutor mechanism flawed as it is, is a means that we have of picking up the pieces. Let's leave it there. Ben, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.